The Word of God is found in the last two verses of 2 Peter 3, where we read as follows. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. This is the concluding word of the entire epistle, beloved, and it takes the form of an admonition, an exhortation. And that admonition is based upon what you read in the beginning of verse 17. Seeing ye know these things before. In the broad sense of the word, when the apostle writes that, he is referring to all that he had written in this epistle about the heretics, about the false teachers who tried to lead the church away from the truth and away from the walk in sanctification of life. But more particularly, when the apostle writes about knowing these things before, he is writing about the coming of the day of the Lord and of all that he had written in connection with that. The knowledge of the coming of that day of the Lord ought to have a good effect upon the life and walk of the people of God so that they hope, so that they are in earnest expectation of that day and because they hope so that they walk in sanctification of life and guard against falling out of their own steadfastness. That's the one ground of his exhortation here. The other is in those words, ye, beloved, that ye, in verse 17, stands in emphatic contrast with those to whom the apostle had referred in the immediately preceding verse, the unlearned and the unstable who rest the scriptures, not only the scriptures of Paul, but also all the other scriptures unto their own destruction. It emphasizes also the fact that God's people know these things. And the beloved there, ye beloved, uh, 
implies the possibility of the admonition. They are beloved of God, beloved of Christ, beloved of the apostle, who have tasted and who have experienced the power of that love of God. Ye, ye who not only can and who not only ought to, but who as children of God surely will be impelled to heed this admonition. And the admonition is a double one. It's negative and it's positive. The negative is, do not fall out of your own steadfastness. Do not be led away by the error of the wicked. And the positive is, grow in grace and grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because all of that will be in harmony with the very purpose of your calling and the very purpose of your confession and that's mentioned in the last sentence of the epistle to him be glory both now and forever. So I call your attention this afternoon to an admonition to grow in grace. An admonition to grow in grace. Let's notice in the first place its meaning. In the second place the way of growing in grace. And in the third place the purpose. Negatively, the text says, Beware lest being led away with the error of the wicked, and lest ye fall out of your own steadfastness. To be steadfast, and I'll return to that a little bit later, is to be stable, to be firm to be set fast. Yeah, the admonition of the apostle is a repetition of an earlier warning in the epistle, first of all, to watch against false teachers, against the error of the wicked. Notice those words, the error of the wicked. Error is not just a mistake. Error is not just an innocent misunderstanding of the truth. But error, as is plain in this third chapter and also earlier in the epistle, especially in chapter 2, error is a wicked and intentional distortion of the truth. You must remember that. False teachers are wicked. They may be very nice men. Frequently in the course of history, false teachers have been sometimes nicer men than true teachers. A 
man like Pelagius, for example, in the time of Augustine, was was a very uh, uh, polished and learned man, nice man. Arminius was the same way when he was professor at at Leiden, along with Franciscus Gomarus. Arminius was a nice man. He was popular with the students. He had them over for coffee, and he had them over for evening tea. And Gomarus was a rather sharp man, sometimes even a little bit crude. When, uh, when the delegate from Bremen, Martinius, at the Synod of Dort, you know, came out with his uh, heresy of, of general atonement, right on the Synod of Dort. Gomara spit on the floor, he was so disgusted. He wasn't always such a nice man. But uh, false teachers can be. But remember, false teachers are wicked. And they are wicked, first of all. That's their problem. They're wicked. And in their wickedness, as is plain also from chapter 2 and the first part of chapter 3, in their wickedness they serve the lust of the flesh. And in order to defend their evil walk, and in order to be popular with their following, they distort the truth. They distort the truth according to their own taste and according to their own desire. That's the way it was, was with regard to false teachers in the apostles' time, Peter's time. That's the way it is today, too. Don't forget that. They all, of course, always want to go by the name of Christian. They all want to be acknowledged, but false teachers are characterized by this one thing, and you can always test that, test that by the scriptures. They do not want the truth. And if, if they're confronted by that, confronted by the truth, and confronted by the fact that they do not want that truth, eventually they will say so too. I don't like to tell very many stories from the pulpit, but I want to tell this one this afternoon. When my father was first in the ministry, in his first congregation, he was doing family visitation to all the families of the congregation. And uh, he came to a man who uh, said to him, he, he was uptight already when my father came in the house, said to him, I like the good old invitation of the pulpit. Oh, says my father, what would you think of me, Mr. So-and-so, if I invited you over to my house and 
I gave you a cigar, and all night long I said to you, come in, come in, Mr. Brown, come in, Mr. Brown, come in, Mr. Brown. Well, he said, I think you were kind of crazy. Well, he said, that's what you want me to do in the church. You want to hear the good old invitation all the time. Come in, come in, come in. What must I preach for those who are in? But the trouble was that the man didn't, and that was his next point, he didn't believe in sovereign predestination. Not at all. Didn't want it. Didn't want it from the pulpit, and he had heard it, of course, from my father's preaching. And uh, finally he said that there was no reprobation in the Bible. And my father did a very daring thing at that time. He said to this man, you put that Bible on the table, like this, on its spine and let it fall open wherever it will. He said, I guarantee you that wherever it falls open, you'll find the teaching of sovereign reprobation. I often wondered what he would have done if it had fallen open to the genealogies in the book of Chronicles, but it didn't. It fell open to John 12, passage where uh, Jesus where Jesus is talking about those who didn't believe his preaching and he quotes first from Isaiah 53 verse 1 who hath believed our report to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed and so on and then you read though he had done so many miracles among them, yet they believe not on him. See, the man said, see. They didn't believe. That was the trouble. It wasn't a question of sovereign reprobation. My father said, read just a little farther. And there you read, therefore Isaiah saith again, he hath blinded their eyes and uh, hardened their hearts so that they could not believe. You know what the upshot of that was? And that's the point of my story this afternoon. He said, that I don't want. I don't want it. That's what a false teacher does. He doesn't want the truth. Also today, the apostle says to the saints, Watch against that. Do not allow your own heart and mind to be filled with it. Don't allow it to creep into the church. Be on guard against that. Have no false sympathy with such teachers of error, such deliberate teachers of error. Why not? Because they lead you astray. They would make you fall from your steadfastness. To be steadfast is to 
remain in the same spot. And in this case, to be steadfast means to remain on the position, the standpoint of the truth in two ways, spiritually, so that you are not uncertain, so that you are not wavering in regard to your relation to Christ, and practically, so that you do not follow after the lust of the flesh and the things of the world. That admonition to be on guard lest you fall from your own steadfastness implies, you see, that you occupy a certain position to begin with. You have a stand. You have the stand of a Christian, of a child of God. You're rooted in Christ and you're expecting the coming of his day. <coughs> and to be steadfast means that you are firmly established in that position. You're not unstable. But this warning, beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness, implies that there is nevertheless a danger of your falling out of that position. And therefore, the apostle says, be on guard. Be on your guard. Beware, lest you be moved from that position. Maybe you say, is that danger real? Can a child of God fall? And if he can, how is that to be harmonized with the truth of the sure preservation and perseverance of the saints? The answer to those questions is, first of all, that that danger is certainly real. Otherwise, there would be no sense in the admonition, huh? I don't have to warn you, don't fall down the steps. If there's no danger that you're going to fall down the steps, doesn't make sense. So it is indeed possible to fall, possible to become wavering and weak. It's always possible for a child of God. It's impossible that he falls from grace completely and finally, but he can certainly fall, he can fall deeply. Think how deeply a man like David uh, fell. You can read of the depth of that fall in a psalm like Psalm 32. He had no no uh, awareness of being a child of God left anymore. Or think of Peter. Oh Lord, I'll never fall. I'll, I'll never, never fall. 
Everybody else could forsake you, Lord, but not I. And the Lord said, Oh, Peter, watch out. Before the cock crows twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And that very night he went out and he fell miserably. Don't forget that. Don't forget too, beloved, that while it is certainly true that it is impossible for uh, the elect child of God finally to fall from grace, that that is due to grace, not to you. You don't have the canons of Dort as one of your confessions. Although the churches of England and Scotland were represented at the Synod of Dort and they signed it too, the canons. But there's a statement, a very striking statement in the fifth chapter of the canons of Dort on the perseverance of the saints because you know, the Arminians taught that there was a possibility, just a possibility of a falling away of the saints. Our Reformed Fathers said, no, no. They said, as far as we are concerned, as far as the saints are concerned, it's not only possible that they would fall away, it would surely happen if we were ever left to ourselves we're preserved and we persevere by grace you see it's possible too remember that in our generations we fall away that's why it's so important that you not only know these things and understand them and grow in them yourselves, but that you also teach them to your children from earliest childhood on, so that they know, they must know. It's possible, you know, for the following generation to be cut out of the olive tree of the church it is possible even for a whole congregation to fall away. I've known some that have. Must not forget what I said, that the grace of preservation is a current of grace that runs through us. The Lord doesn't save us as stocks and blocks. He doesn't bring me from earth to heaven the way I can move this Bible from the left of the podium to the right of the podium. That Bible has nothing to say about it, has nothing to do with it. It's, it's dead. You can move it around wherever you please. It has no will. We're not stocks and blocks. The current of God's preserving grace runs through us. And when it runs through us, it becomes manifest as a struggle 
to persevere and that preserving grace I'll come back to that presently is applied to us through the word of God preached and through admonition and through the sacraments and it's applied to us in the way of perseverance that's the one side of the admonition the other side is positive grow in grace that's the necessary opposite apostle doesn't want us to be stagnant to stand still not to grow steadfastness requires growth I can give you examples of that what happens to a child's top as soon as it stops spinning it's no more steadfast it topples over what happens to the man on the bicycle as soon as he stops pedaling he falls over what happens to a tree that may be firmly established but it ceases to grow and ceases to develop in time it's going to rot and topple over so it is with the child of God he may be firmly established but if he does not grow in grace he will fall out of his steadfastness notice that term grace grace has various connotations various shades of meaning in scripture sometimes that term grace denotes a perfection of God himself God is gracious in himself as the God of infinite perfection he's pleasant beautiful in and of and by himself sometimes the term grace denotes God's attitude toward his creature an attitude of favor and loving kindness sometimes it has that same uh, shade of meaning but with the emphasis upon the idea of unmerited favor it denotes favor to those who are in themselves unworthy but who are worthy in Christ then that term grace stands over against works or over against merit and that's revealed in the forgiveness of sins sometimes in the Bible the term grace uh, denotes the power and the operation of the Spirit of Christ in our hearts whereby we become partakers of all the spiritual blessings of salvation and sometimes it denotes those spiritual blessings themselves 
the blessings that we receive through the Spirit of Christ. And in that sense of the word, the grace of God sometimes is said to be manifold. That's the idea in our text. Our text has reference to the spiritual blessings in Christ and the spiritual virtues that are the fruit of the operation of the Spirit of Christ in us. So, concretely, it includes the blessing of righteousness and forgiveness of sins. It includes the blessing of adoption unto children. It includes the blessing of the assurance of faith. It includes the blessing of the hope of eternal life. It includes the spiritual virtues of holiness and meekness and love and patience and long-suffering and temperance in all things, the virtue of prayer and thanksgiving, virtue of diligence in the service of God, and so on. The apostles admonishes the church here, grow in grace. Grow in grace. That expression could mean, possibly, grow by means of grace. If we understand grace in the sense of the power and operation of the Spirit in us, then it's true, of course, that we grow through grace, grow spiritually through grace. But that isn't what he says here. He means that we, that grace is that in which we ought to increase and grow. You have that more in scripture. You even read it of the Lord Jesus. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor or grace with God and man. So you have it here. This is an admonition. It could hurt spiritual virtues. Grow stronger in assurance. Grow more meek. Grow more patient. Grow more loving of the brethren. Grow more in righteousness. Grow more in the assurance of faith. Grow more in the hope of eternal life. Grow more in holiness. Grow more in the love of God. Grow more in patience and in long-suffering. That's an admonition, you understand? That's the Word of God this afternoon to you and to me. We must do something. We must do something about that. You can't just sit there and think, well, it's going to happen. It isn't. You must grow. And I must grow. It's not just a pious wish either. I hope you will grow, and I pray that you will grow. That may be ever so nice. It's an admonition. You must put forth earnest endeavor to increase in 
the spiritual blessings and virtues. How is that possible? <coughs> There's a connection in our text in verse 18 between the two parts, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In the text here, those two phrases are, are uh, on equal footing, in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But the meaning is, increase in grace by way of increasing in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We must know Him. must know Christ as the anointed of God. We must know Jesus, Jehovah salvation, the revelation of the God of our salvation. We must know him as our Savior, the one who saves us from sin and death, saves us unto righteousness and glory. Understand? He's the Savior. Not the possible Savior. The Savior. He really saves. You must know Him as such. You must know Him as our Lord who owns us, who is responsible for us, who rules over us by His Word and Spirit, and whom it is our calling with body and soul in life and in death for time and eternity to serve. Must know Him. Must know Him as he was revealed in his incarnation and death and resurrection. Must know him as he stands revealed to us in the scriptures. We mustn't have just a little thumbnail gospel. These scriptures, there you find Christ. All of them from Genesis to Revelation. It's all the word of Christ. The word of Christ and the word concerning Christ. You must know them. And when the apostle talks about knowing him, he's not talking merely about knowing about him. That's different. I may know all about someone without knowing him. Very well possible. I read Time magazine this week and I read quite a bit about that Emperor Hirohito of Japan who just died. I learned quite a bit about him. But I don't know him. I never knew him. 
possible to read these scriptures and to know all about Christ without knowing him too. Possible to be a theologian who's very learned in the things of Christ without knowing Christ. I think there are quite a few theologians like that nowadays. They're unbelievers. Apostle is talking about a personal, spiritual knowledge of faith, a knowledge of love, a knowledge of the heart, so that we know him and receive him and acknowledge him as our Savior and our Lord. That's quite different. And you understand, beloved, that presupposes that we have a true knowledge about him. You can't know someone without knowing about him. We must know, have knowledge of his purpose, and knowledge of his power, and knowledge of his work, and knowledge of his will, and knowledge of his precepts. And you find all that knowledge in the Holy Scriptures. There's no other way than that to be steadfast and to grow in grace. Why not? Because all the blessings of salvation are in Christ. That's all. They're all implied, those blessings and spiritual graces in, in His Lordship. How shall we grow in the possession then of spiritual virtues if we don't know him? How shall we grow in the exercise of spiritual graces and virtues except by a true and loving knowledge of his lordship over us? That means, of course, that you must live close to this word here in the church. You can't expect to grow in grace if you're not faithful in making use of the means of grace in his church. That's God's designated way. You can't expect to grow in grace if, if the Bible is up on a shelf in your home and you hardly ever take it down. You don't read it in your family devotions. You don't read it in your personal life and devotions. You can't expect to grow in grace then. That's the way. You must strive, the apostle says, to grow in grace the full assurance of the blessings that you have in Christ and in the exercise of spiritual virtues. And you must strive to do that by seeking to grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And how can we strive to grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? By striving to know all about him. The more, the better. 
therefore, by diligently attending unto the word of God. And the purpose? To him be glory both now and forever. That's a doxology to close the whole epistle, undoubtedly, but more narrowly, it's connected with the words of our text this afternoon. The sense of it is not just that it ascribes praise to God, but the point is that the Christian life must be such a doxology. Doesn't mean anything, you know, if after a while you at the close of the service, you sing Psalm 100 and ascribe praise to God. And it doesn't go any farther than those words. is isn't a part of your life. That can only testify against you, ultimately. The Christian life must be a doxology. The Christian life must say, to him be glory now because that glory is the manifestation of course of God's goodness and God's virtues that's his glory and the church the believers must say not only in words but in deeds in life glory to God he saved us for that purpose And his glory is revealed exactly to the believers. And that must endure into the beginning of the everlasting state. Then we won't have to be on guard again anymore, whether we shall fall from our steadfastness. The battle will be finished. And we will have grown in grace and we will know him then, beloved, know him as we never knew him before. In the perfection of the new heavens and the new earth. And forever and ever we will say, glory to God. Glory now, but glory forever. Because his purpose was not merely to save you and me, but to glorify his own divine name. Amen. Let's stand for prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank thee for thy word and testimony. We pray wilt thou apply it unto our hearts and lives, unto the hearts and lives of our children with us that we may be steadfast and unmovable, and that we may grow in grace through growing in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Dismiss us now with thy blessing. Go with us and be with us in these couple of weeks when we shall not be together. Keep us in thy care, and above all, O Lord, Keep us faithful to thy word and thy will, that we may show forth the praises of thee, our God. For Jesus' sake, amen.
I think you all know that my wife and I plan to leave tomorrow on the plane for a couple of weeks in Philadelphia in the States for the institution of the new little congregation in that area. I think I'm safe in saying that when I go there, I may tell them that I carry your greetings and congratulations too. I'm going to do that. And the Lord willing, we'll be back February, February 8. If you can remember it that long, I'd like to meet the Thursday Catechism class, February 9, and also our adult Bible study on Friday, February 10. Psalm 100, all people that dwell on, that on earth do dwell, sing to the Lord with cheerful voice, him serve with mirth, his praise forth tell, come ye before him and rejoice. Psalm 100. face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Amen. <laughs>